Welcome to Devlin, episode number 58-ish, I think. Uh, we took a bit of a break, um, willingly, uh, and we thought there is enough of Devlin already, but then we realized there is not enough of Devlin already, so we're going to get back to uh, recording a nice episode for everybody who is uh, staying safe and healthy and staying at home in this uh, strange times. And we decided we're going to get an awesome guest, literally. So we looked for uh, how do we spell awesome in uh, Norwegian. It turned out to be A-S-S-U-M, I guess. So welcome to Defen, Eric. Eric, awesome. Thank you. That's uh, It is a real honor and privilege to to be here. I'm sad for the program, though, because you've had like important and uh, brilliant people before. And I guess now it's just going downhill since you have to uh, reach out to me. <laughs> no, no, that's that's. I mean, there, there were a couple of episodes where there were no guests, so that was our low point already. And that was like a completely, you know, uh, levels and levels of you know yeah. below. We, we set we've set the bar incredibly low for this show. Okay, good. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, in fairness, you're just about clearing it, Eric. But you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Um, uh, maybe I think it's uh, good to have a quick introduction uh, about uh, you know, what you're doing right now, Eric. Uh, yeah, so I'm a programmer at a Norwegian company called Ardoc, and um, I've been there for two and a half years, and um, been programming since '95, um, I think, uh, professionally. That's 1995, like for you know, for the young people. Um, oh, I mean, I was thinking 1895 or 1795, <laughs> I mean, uh, because yeah. I'm used to race time period, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, um, but the thing is that I think I look upon myself as a fairly normal programmer, like nothing special. And um, that's why I'm a little bit confused why I'm here. I mean, why you are here? As in, why you're in Norway? Or no, why am I on the Defen <laughs> podcast? It's like uh, you've had uh, Zach Tellman, you've had uh, Stuart Holloway, and like these these people that are super brilliant, and then you have me working as a programmer in Norway, and would probably rather be rock climbing or something, you know? Yeah, but it's okay though, because um, I think the point about the point about our program is that you don't come on here and code; you come on here and talk. And uh, we've both talked to you plenty, Eric, and we know you can do that. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you already, you know, uh, pointed out that we only invite brilliant guests onto the podcast. So, you know, <laughs> previously, previously, before they hate us. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. Uh, so, um, I think maybe we can start with something that's more recent. And uh, you gave a really nice talk at uh, Closure D, uh, Eric. It was really, uh, uh, how do you say that? You, you're putting your knowledge out there and maybe it's um, instead of me paraphrasing and then uh, bullshitting my way through that one, it would be nice if you can talk about what you uh, talked about at uh, Closure D. Yeah, so I have a colleague uh, who said that he wants to find this uh, big problem that he wants to work on um, and solve. And I think that the thing that I'm really interested in is uh, writing... Like what is good code? What is good code? How do you write good code? And that's 
that's one of the reasons I wanted to work professionally with Clojure is that um, it it seemed like a fun tool for writing your own little toy programs, but does it scale uh, when you were several developers working with it over time? And the talk that I gave at Clojure D was sort of some of the observations that I've done that uh, when you work in a dynamic language where you don't have to name those that many things, um, what are the pitfalls you can fall into? And what are the things that you might do if you program in Java where you have to name everything that you should maybe um, bring over to Clojure, even though you don't have to name everything? Yeah. And and because, I mean, obviously, it's almost uh, 25 years of coding. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, what what was the journey? Because obviously, the the lessons that you are putting into closure programming are are from different um, building different sorts of systems over the years, right? Yeah. So I started out work started out working in Oc. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My my education is in Simula, which is uh, sort of the first object oriented programming. Uh, if you don't listen to uh, Alan Kay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I got a summer job doing some stuff in Awk, which was basically just text transformation. And mm -hmm. from there, it was uh, easy to transform into web development because at the time it was done in Perl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, in the early days of web, there was a lot of sort of not so interesting stuff to do. So... I amused myself with trying to write more obfuscated Perl code, which is, you know, not so hard, but uh, you can write it even more um, ugly or dense. And yeah. I found that one of the reasons I, or one of the things that I really liked about Perl was you could explore the language. Um, it's like many different ways to do th some things, um, which when I came to Java, it felt like boring it's just it's just one way to do things and you have to write a lot of stuff to get that stuff done and i remember from starting out in java it was like why do i need these classes these objects i have maps and lists that's what yeah. you use in in perl right in perl. yeah um and why do you have to tell the compiler that the thing is a string but when you, when the compiler knows it's a string it's just a lot of stuff that I found really hard with uh, with Java. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things about things like Orc and Perl as well is that the the feedback loop is incredibly tight, isn't it? You know, just like any kind of shell interpreted programming. Um, you know, you write a script and it was built to get stuff done, whereas I felt Java was not. Yeah. It's like eventually in Java, you could get stuff done. But um, I mean, I can still not read the contents of a file into a variable in, in Java. I think that's a <laughs> funny characteristic uh, observation, though, because I think like C, for example, is quite, uh, it's not as verbose as Java, but you know, this, the feedback loop isn't as, isn't as quick, you know, especially when you get into like C, C++, the compile linting, you know, kind of the, the compile and then the linking. And then the linting, and then, then you run your program. And I think there are plenty of languages that get things done that don't have immediate feedback loops. Um, but it is painful, though. 
But I, yeah. think, I think Java is designed to get things done, but it's just, it's designed to get things done in what they consider to be a safe way. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the sort of value proposition, if you like, of Java is that what, what, we, what we will give you is um, an environment that is safe to run on different platforms. Yeah, but I think it's uh, uh, Java's value proposition is more towards the businesses and the enterprises than, their, than it is to the programmer. Mm. Right. It's it's not fun to program in Java, but uh, if you have one Java programmer, you can just exchange it for another one. It's uh, it's safe. It became like that. Right. Maybe initially Java was fun, probably with the maybe one dot two, one dot one or maybe one dot five level. Yeah, exactly. And then later, I think with the Java EE stuff came in and then 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 I think the whole whole. Fancy stuff started, and it, it's it's uh, really funky that we have Java E and then J two E and then uh, the book. Uh, uh, what was the book about? Um, uh, effective? No, not not effective Java. Concurrency. Uh, no, the other book by um, the guy who uh, that kickstarted the Ruby on Rails sort of movement. So they had this. Hanemeyer. Uh, no, I mean he made the Ruby on Rails, but there was a book. Uh, that uh, started Spring as well to lightweight Pico containers and all that stuff. And then okay. we started going in that direction and then Spring became like fucking bloated shit again. Yeah. But I think in, in the beginning though, as Ray says, uh, Java was kind of cool. You had these applet things, right? You could yeah, yeah. create like animations and stuff in the browser, which sure, sure. you couldn't do with Perl, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, I think the fact that you could run Java, like I was used to running to C and C++, the fact that you could write Java without doing memory management was quite an advantage, you know? Mm. Yeah, but then there I came from Simula, which was garbage collected, and it was object-oriented. So basically, when I I saw Java, it was like, yeah, it's it's, uh, Simula in a different language. Uh, and it's it's got this virtual machine, and I think Jamie Zawinski wrote a really nice blog post on that. That what you brand as Java was like three different things. It was the virtual machine, which we're yes, yes. which we're using in Closure. Then there's the standard library, and then there's a language. Language, yes. yeah. And I think that the virtual machine and the and the standard library was a good thing. Yeah, I think that's what we are exploiting, quote unquote, exploiting in enclosure and other languages as well, right? The JVM as a technology is a really, really mature and useful, and and so that's, and that, I think that's uh, that's one of the. But also, aren't you aren't you like you're glossing over the fact that you know a lot of the big projects and the big frameworks are written in Java, and um, you know without those big frameworks or those big libraries it's actually quite difficult to to do a lot of the work we want to do you know because we can't yeah. always just do that in closure or you know or write it from scratch yeah i don't remember who that was but there was a recent podcast i think someone talked about how um java sort of delivered on this promise of writing or no it was rich hickey of course we had a rich hickey lunch talk week And in one of his talks, he says that uh, C++ couldn't sort of deliver on this right reusable um, code because of memory management. Mm -hmm. Uh, So nobody could agree on who was to clear up the uh, the, uh, the memory. 
And Java delivered on that. And that's how we have this huge ecosystem of, of uh, useful libraries and frameworks. Yeah, I think that makes sense. But coming from Perl, I mean, Perl, obviously, as you said, you know, there is more than one way to do it, the Tim Toady or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember writing some Perl web applications. Um, and then I switched to Java. Uh, so how, how, how was the transition for you? Was it too far in the... In the in the past, or what from from Perl to Java? Uh, I found it really painful. It felt like you could not get shit done, um, and I didn't understand why we needed all these classes. Yeah, and uh, regexes were not a part of Java at that point, and Perl was all regexes. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah that was painful. And also the whole like you you when you did web programming with uh, with Perl it was CGI right it was yeah 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 um, super simple and then suddenly you have these uh, applications or servlet engines and you have servlets and now why would you at at that point you had template libraries for Perl right yeah 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 and then someone comes along and you don't even have JSP yet you're you're writing servlets so you're sitting there with a Java class and you're string concatenating html now how do you uh, who, who, who the, the one that managed to sell that is you know it's it's incredible yeah that's uh strange times hmm. anyway i mean luckily i think uh, eventually jsp showed up i mean yeah. not, not a better one but slightly uh slightly more useful i would say yeah because then you had jsps which were like p that's like php right yeah. uh because you have this uh it's a class that's inside out yeah, um, yeah. and uh, you had a bunch of bad Java code intermingled with uh, HTML code, which was also horrendous. But then uh, tag libs came along and, and things yeah. became sort of usable, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you had a lot of templates like velocity and stuff like Pretty that. Pretty marker, yeah. Came a lot nicer, yeah. 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 But at, at that point, we were sort of at the, at the company that I were at, was at there, we had uh, Java things that were generating lists, and then you had JSPs which uh, generated XML, and then we had XSL on top of that, which transformed oh, the X XML yeah. into HTML, so that we had reusability all over the place. Right? Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I forgot. I mean, I kind of want. <laughs> yeah, I'd kind of forgotten about the whole XML XSL world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, in a way, is kind of cool because XSL or XSLT is functional programming in a way. In yeah, a way. yeah. But it's yeah, just done yeah. in XML, so it's really painful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like it's like chocolate wrapped in shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like chocolate wrapped in shit. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nobody wants to eat it. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of businesses running on uh, XSLT transformations. I know some of them. So. That was uh, yeah. That was rough. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's like a lot of this shit. It never goes away. You know, we're we're using um, XML um, still and XSLT for some security protocols like SAML. Um, mm. Still yep. use this shit, and like there are all these weird, wonderful things like ASN one that still get used in certificate creations. So you know, none of this, <laughs> none of this shit really ever dies. You know. No, but then I think the problem with XML was that we were using it all over the place. And it was, I think it's a nice format that you can, 
build interfaces on top of right because it's it's declared so you know exactly sure. what goes yeah. where so yeah uh but the problem was that we were hand coding the shit and hand reading mm -hmm. it yeah and also for for every possible type it's just xml and then one more schema and then yeah. that yep. gets put everywhere yep. you know it's it's a data interchange format it's a data storage format and all the, and all the nuisance and yeah i mean to be honest as a as a interchange format i thought xml was pretty decent to be honest yeah um i mean now I we're stuck with uh, json and yaml yeah i i actually preferred xml over json and yaml yeah, to be totally honest. I mean, you know, I don't want to write configuration files in XML. Yeah, exactly. YAML is better for that. Um, I don't want to write configuration files in JSON. No. But I think yeah. YAML is good for configuration files. Uh, I so totally disagree. Okay. Actually, that's, 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 <laughs> the, the thing is that well, now, now you know yeah. why we why we invited you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> to put us in our place, you know. You have to, uh, we have to define configuration. That's the first thing we have to do, right? And when I say that I hate YAML, it's in terms of um, configuring um, like Amazon stuff, AWS, configuring servers and all that stuff, mm -hmm. where I think that this declarative approach is failed because you, you want to be able to do this programmatically. You want to be able to store oh, sure. some state. Yeah. You want to... Yeah, you know, yeah. you want to do this enclosure. You want to program your thing. It's like a, it's like yeah, a program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so we're talking across purposes. What I mean is, if I have to hand code something, I would hand code YAML rather than hand code these other things. But I completely agree with you that infrastructure should be code. Yeah, and not um, YAML. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But it might bottom out into some serialized format that could be YAML or XML or JSON. No, don't don't give a shit really. Yeah. But you know. I don't want to. I don't want to program complicated things like that in it. Yeah, for sure. It's one of the reasons I'm staying out of ops is that the tooling there is so horrendous. Oh yeah, it's a it's it's a fucking mess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you, especially if you go to cloud, then it's a, you know YAML based shit, as you know, probably cloud formation and everything, and they have JSON based shit as well. And then you go into Kubernetes. That's another weird crap out there. And then you have um, yeah, and then you have all the Terraform stuff, and then there is, uh, yeah, some some weird, uh, weird, weird crap there. But uh, I think there are a couple of. Um, uh, well, I've got to say, I mean, you know, I think to your point though, BJ, I think Terraform and HashiCorp in, as a company are actually making ops um, tolerable, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say that um, they, they've they seem to be listening to developers and understanding what the pain points are. So yes. you know, I, you know, I've been quite impressed by uh, the HashiCorp tools, to be honest. And, you know, we use them for you know, for various, you know, configuration things at work. And um, yeah. they, I think they're pretty good. Yeah. Mm. They also take an immu a kind of semi-immutable approach as well. It kind of like, if you think about, like, what, what kind of reacted to the DOM, Terraform mm. sort of does to your infrastructure. Now you don't always yeah. want that to happen to your infrastructure, and that's a pain in the ass when when you want to do something else. But this notion of having a declarative model that you say, you know, I want my infrastructure to look like this, and it essentially does a diff and and makes it happen. It's quite yeah, nice. it, it applies the changes and then it's yeah. keeping the state somewhere remote. Yeah. And but the the problem for me is sort of uh, what what the um, 
what the language you're coding in looks like. It's not it's not at all elegant. It looks it looks like oh we tried to do this declarative thing and then we oh shit we needed for loops. Oh yeah 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 absolutely. And then yes. um, yeah yeah. As soon as things get uh, true incomplete, you've got problems. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, by the way, on that on that point, um, I think we were myself and Vijay were at a conference recently. Fostem, um, we were looking at this um, thing called uh, Quix or Geeks. Geeks. Uh, which is it's G-U-I-X. Yeah, Geeks. Um, Geeks, which is a kind of scheme version of Nix. Um, and this kind of concept of immutable infrastructure is 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 gaining ground. Um, that could be something that could be interesting for you, Eric, because because then it really is kind of proper FP. You know, you can think about your entire operating system as sort of disposable, um, you know, one shot things that you that you really do just um, that you create once and then throw away. It's it's problem it's problematic for for stateful things like databases, but for many things, it's quite nice. And yeah. it's Lisp, yeah. so it's much. Uh... Nicer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so um, how did you get into Clojure then, Eric? Well, that's a couple of years ago in 2013, I guess. I was working on a Java Spring project and sort of getting interesting, guess, guess getting interested into functional programming. And I bought a couple of books on Scala and a couple of books on Clojure. Yeah, and at the time I thought Scala was the thing to do, but then I saw this talk by uh, Bodil Stocke, a fellow Norwegian. She's living yep. in London now. Yeah, and she basically during this talk uh, coded up a full CRUD application in a uh, hundred lines of closure and with with templates and everything. And it's like I was wow. the, on my day job that would have been thousand lines of code. And then I got the uh, possibility to do a side project. And basically, I couldn't be arsed with Scala's uh, syntax. So I figured I'll try uh, I'll try Clojure instead. And uh, it basically got me to where I wanted to be. Hmm. But uh, are you following uh, the, Boodle into, the into the type language? Said, Come on. Uh, so, are you following Bodil into typed adventures as no. well? I remember. No. I think she moved into no. uh, Haskell a bit and then Rust a bit as well. Yeah. No, I'm not following her there. I sort of fell off in Closure Land. <laughs> but what's kind of interesting is that a lot of the things that I found nice with Closure was that you get stuff done, which is kind of easy but not simple. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you have this, uh, like, you you can slurp things from a file, right? Yeah. Uh, this is easy. It's not simple. Whereas Java has uh, input streams and buffered readers and whatnot, which is simple. Yeah. But not easy. Yeah. <laughs> and you have the the bean library for or the bean function for uh, for closure, which lets yeah. you read um, Java bean. This is also yeah. easy. Mm. But maybe not simple. So I got into closure for all the easy stuff. And I guess I stuck here for the simplicity. <laughs> Nicely put. Yeah. But how did you? So, one of the things that uh, I think uh, 
in the beginning, you were talking about the scaling up closure to multiple teams, etc. And so, yeah. how how big is your team, and and how are you handling that? Because this has been one of the discussion points everywhere. And then, uh, like, oh, you know, dynamic languages they can't scale, and and it's difficult to maintain large code bases. Yeah. So we have a fairly fairly simple product implemented in a fairly difficult way, if you will. Um, so we have uh, some 40,000 lines of production code, uh, which has been written over um, since 2013, so over seven years, mm. um, with a fairly stable uh, bunch of people. Uh, started out with the founder. He wrote like a lot for the first uh, two, three years. Then we got one more on board. Then I came, and then now we're uh, four more. So we're about seven on back end. Okay, and and the whole application is a closure closure script or no? It's closure, and then it's uh, JavaScript on the front end. Okay, but and, why JavaScript? Uh, because the there were two founders. Uh, one on the back end, one on the front end, and the one on the front end, he knew JavaScript. <laughs> that, that that makes sense. Yeah. So now they're converting all their stuff to TypeScript, and that's sort of when I stopped contributing to the to the front end. Hmm. Right. So there was no um, push for oh, you know, we we have all this closure, and it makes sense to have closure script in the front end. No, we have a little piece uh, written in ClojureScript as well, uh, but that's a side thing. Okay. Yeah. So it seems this is sort of not a critique of my current colleagues, but a critique of programmers in general is that we seem to be very sort of complacent. It's like, oh, I know this stuff. Uh, I, you know, yeah. I know my Java. Why should I change? It's not that bad. So, so, so trying to show people a better way of working is it's futile. But it is a it is really tricky, right? Because Let, let's not go quite that far, though, Eric. You know, <laughs> 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 you know I mean, let's stop the wrist slashing at this point. You know, it's like <laughs> I don't think you know all hope is not lost. You know, it's like. But you know, I think that one of the problems with the with selling closure script, to be totally honest, is that the it depends on the people you're selling it to, and it depends mm -hmm. on the problem you're addressing and all these other things, you know. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's like the tooling might be, um, and I'm not talking about just compiling closure, but like all the tricks and all the trivia that you know about CSS and know about JavaScript and you know about the libraries. Exactly. Then. Yeah. You don't exactly know how to solve these problems. You don't know how to use ClojureScript in anger. Yeah. And especially and if I you've totally already got like a fairly complicated application on the front end, the, the prospect of, of, of porting that over to ClojureScript without any, it depends on what you perceive to be the actual value to the business and the value to your ability to deliver that business. Because JavaScript's dynamic, you can do things quite quickly. You know, people—they're not always—they're not always looking for the most perfect solution. They're looking for a practical solution. So, if you've got a thousand or ten thousand lines of JavaScript, the cost of porting that could be quite high. You know, so I, I don't—I don't blame people for not doing it. No, but I—I I find that 
uh, I have colleagues that work in or f- friends that work in uh, in Scala, and they've sort of introduced introduced Scala uh, in a clo- in a company where a lot of people do uh, Java, and they're not interested. Yeah, it's like yeah. oh, I have to well, that, I have to learn reasonable. something new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's tiresome. There is a there is a there is a balance, right? Because it's when you're trying to solve a problem, there is a balance between, okay, I know all this stuff and that can solve these problems because it's a proven that it can solve the problems. And now I don't know anything about this new, this new shit. And then now I have to figure out everything. And yep. I don't even know whether it is going to solve my problem in the same way or not. So I think for the greenfield projects, it, it makes more sense because you can just start off and then it's easier to start a new technology. But if you want to port yeah, something, it's, it's mental. I've been working on a bunch of Java programs or Java projects where I wanted to convert to, you know, earlier I wanted to convert to Scala and later to Clojure. Yeah. And it's, it is not something that really makes sense to me. Yeah. Because you have to not only, if it's only me, then it's fine, but there's a team. So the team has to want to do this and yeah. the team has to be motivated to learn Clojure or Scala or whatever. Yeah. And your application has to be written in such a way that you can actually start rewriting it because it doesn't, and that's something that's going to have to be done over a long period of time. So you have to be able to bite off small chunks, rewrite that, and then continue. Because if you have an app of like 50,000 lines of code, then it doesn't make sense to stop shop and re-implement it in whatever other language. Yeah. I mean, you have to be really suffering. That's that's the point. Yeah, you have to be really yep. suffering with that. You know, with like you're completely unable to deliver any new functions, or you're finding bugs. Th- things are failing left and right. You know, I, I think that those are the kind of motivations that make people change. I, I, I would, I don't think people. I think there are a lot of nine to five programmers for sure who you know who don't give a shit what language they're programming. They just want their money, and that's that's fair enough. By the way, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> no, I mean it's a job, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, they're just they're just punching out code for someone, you know, for some yeah. big corporation. So fine, you know, uh, let them do their work, you know. Um, but I think if you're kind of like passionate about a particular like beauty or elegance in a programming language or a programming environment, then I think that's what that's what makes you come to functional programming in general, isn't it? But a lot of people don't understand what the um, sorry. That's when you start porting everything to Arc. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you can really get shit done. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but I think what, what the the reason why uh, these days, um, uh, you know, my my stupid brain starts to think in terms of a more managerial perspective because I've been managing people for I don't know for some some years now. I think the whole idea of okay, let's introduce new technology. I think there is it's a, the whole idea is function of three different things for me: the people who are working in in, in the in the in the team and, and that one, and then technology, and then third one is the business context. So the whole mm-hmm. change is a function of all these three, and yep. I can't just you know change one thing and expect that the it's gonna you know work. If I introduce a new technology, people are gonna fucking leave. That's it. They're like, okay, I don't like this shit. I'm I'm leaving. Yeah, and that's yeah. a problem in sort of our line of work is that I jokingly say that probably even in these Corona times, I can have 13 new jobs tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So if someone does something that I really don't like, I can just leave. Exactly. Uh, So you have to be really careful 
uh, with that. But have, flipping that over is that I think for us, having closure as our language has given us a lot of smart people that we otherwise wouldn't have gotten. Yeah. And we're competing in a very, very small pool of other companies for these developers, right? If you uh, if you hire for Java, then you're competing with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, the business context makes makes sense as well. I mean, for some business context, obviously, closure is not going to be suitable, uh, no. depending on where you are and, you know, where, where, you know, depending on what type of uh, problem that you're solving. So obviously, we want to do closure everywhere, <laughs> but there are some domains that, that you know, they're, they're not there yet or there is not enough libraries or whatever. And, and so it's always yeah, a tricky balance. That's also something that I try to stress when I when I present my views on closure and my sort of experiences is that I work in web development. Yeah. Uh, I have continuous integration. I have continuous deployments. I'm uh, a REPL away from production. Yeah. Uh, I'm I have my build pipeline so I can get a fix from like commit to being in production is two minutes. Mm. So there's. There's a total difference from that and uh, shipping CDs to, <laughs> I don't know, Mars or something. Yeah, sure. So that's a, that's a, so speaking of, um, because uh, you said, you know, closed script uh, tooling and everything, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a difference between or a, or a gap between closure tooling and closed script tooling. So uh, Emacs or some other shit? Uh, Emacs. Okay. And... Uh, there was sort of there was a dark period in my life i st- i started out emacs was my first editor that was what we were taught at the university and coding perl in emacs is obvious yeah um coding java in emacs is not so obvious <laughs> even though there were some efforts so at some point in time i said i will never uh work in a language where there is no decent ide yeah Right, so I switched to I used Eclipse for a long time, and then coming back to Closure, it's like yes, now I have Emacs again, and it's like I will never work in a language where I have to have an IDE to work. (laughs) (laughs) That's the full cycle. (laughs) Yeah, the the funny thing is actually uh, I've I've got completely the opposite experience because maybe it's because I don't know Emacs very well. I used I used um, I think AI that's the problem. For, uh, yeah, yeah, it must yeah. be. <laughs> but but I, I yeah, it was like left and right for me. It was like VI or Emacs, and I went VI oh. because. But but you know that um, Emacs is the superior one there. Yeah. Well, I think to be honest, I was it was a practicality. I mean, for me, it was <laughs> uh, I could always use VI even when I logged into any system that I logged into. I could use VI. Yep. I didn't have to install a tool chain. Whereas that's the problem with Emacs. I think Emacs is like for people who, who want to sort of sit in their sit in their own space and and program their own environment. But if you're doing like admin tasks for, you know, like system admin across a hundred boxes, well, Emacs is not a good place. You know, you, it's not. That's learning how I learned VI. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, so that's the kind of that's where I learned VI as well. And and once you've kind of like put a year into VI or something, well. Eh, I could learn Emacs, but again, it's like one of these like complacency things. You know, why should I unlearn all this stuff? And and from everyone that tells me, it's pretty fucking awesome. But uh, you know, fine. I mean, there is there is a difference between 
drive by editing and formula 1 editing you know sure, so, sure. <laughs> there is certainly a difference so if you want to do drive by editing like oh, i'm going to just jump onto the server and then yeah, remove yeah. a couple of lines and then restart the service and then go home and then, then that's a drive by shit so yeah, that's fine. Yeah, Absolutely. but the, the, yeah. the thing with uh, with Emacs is that it makes perfect sense when you're used to REPL driven development, right? Because yeah, Emacs yeah. is a REPL. Yeah. So, like, uh, I was listening to uh, Bajidar on uh, the REPL podcast here the other day, and it's like, how do you develop stuff in Emacs? Well, you just go into where the source is and you evaluate the new function. Yeah. It's instant feedback. Then you can say that uh, Emacs Lisp is probably not the most beautiful language, but um, it's less. I mean, it, it, it held up for 30 odd years, so, you know, why yeah. not? So, yeah. But even more, I'm, I don't know, uh, 60s, first one. But uh, what, what I was going to say to you, though, was that, like, from an exploratory perspective, IDEs are very nice. Um, like, for instance, recently I've been doing some Go programming and C programming and also some closure programming all together. And I've got like three IDEs open all from JetBrains, like the Sea Lion, <laughs> GoLand, and the IntelliJ. And uh, it's really nice because you've got all these like uh, similar things to explore the functions, to explore the code, find usages. There's perfect debuggers on all of these IDEs, so you can trace what's going on in all the languages. And I've got to say, you know, for me, that's that's been really a perfect experience. But I think you get some of that. I'm not saying you get it as good. I will admit that. But the language modes uh, for Emacs are quite, they're quite similar. Now, uh, I must admit that uh, find usages in uh, cursive is really, really good. And even though Emacs has, or Cider has now something similar, uh, I don't trust it. Yeah. So when I want to figure out where a symbol is used, I can either grep or uh, I can use uh, IntelliJ. Recursive orking. <laughs> <laughs> I still do that occasionally, you know. Because I think uh, cursive and IntelliJ has the MPI thing, like the, there is a semantic model behind it, which makes it uh, easier to walk through yeah, the code. Yeah. I mean, it's very yep. nice across these different languages to have a very yeah. similar experience. And it's a very powerful, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, I agree. I think if, you, if you're if you very familiar with Emacs, it's great. But I would just say that, um, you know, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> but on, on, on that note, though, um, I think that one thing that's really interesting is the work that um, uh, Peter Strömberg has done on Calva. Oh yeah. For for reach. Mm. Uh and also I I'm really happy to see the the work that uh Bajidar is putting into the orch orchard. So and he, yes. he yeah. and the, the way that he's sort of taken the custom code that is specific for Emacs and he pulls it back into these libraries that are usable mm. for, for the whole community is just that's software development as it should have been done. Yeah, definitely. No, he's, he's a hero that in that respect, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and I remember um, Stuart Holloway was saying that you know you don't write uh, lining in plugins, write libraries, and then write plugins for those libraries. Mm. And that's basically what uh, Bajdar is doing now: is pulling these specific things and then making libraries out of them. Yeah. 
so that the re- NREPL middleware becomes really, really thin and it's mm-hmm. just a connector into, um, into the interesting bits. Yeah, yeah I, I've used the, uh, the completions library from um, Orchard in a, in a REPL that I wrote. And um, it was it's 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 fantastic, you know. It's great that you can mm. do completions in in you know in a bespoke REPL. You know? Yeah. So it's been I mean because we are talking about different libraries and people you know uh, contributing to different stuff. So uh, it's been almost seven plus years uh, in closure for you already, right, uh, Eric? I don't know, twenty thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. So yeah. What yeah. what is your what is your experience with the community or the good and uh, not so good things in in the closures world the good good and not so good things is that i'm trapped (laughs) um (laughs) i have a really hard time seeing myself working outside of this community and outside of this language because i sort of feel at home Mm. and i feel it's possible to contribute um, whereas in Java, it's too big and JavaScript is also too big. It's like, you're too, I can have a conversation on Slack or on Twitter with Alex Miller, right? Uh, yeah. uh, that's harder to do that with Brian guts. Mm. <laughs> I don't know where his Slack is. <laughs> um, and I think that there's a couple of years ago when in the closure community, there was like almost an uprising that Cognitech is not listening to us and um, all that stuff. But I think they brought their point across. Mm -hmm. Um, They do the core of the language. And unlike uh, other languages, in Clojure, it's possible to write your stuff on top of what core gives. And that's sort of one of the value propositions of, of a Lisp. And I think one of the, re- the one of the things that I sort of created was uh, the speculative thing. Yeah. So someone was creating or complaining on Twitter that oh, there should be specs for for the closure core. core comp function, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, why don't well, if you want that, why don't we just set out and make it? Mm. And the interesting bit was that I think there's a handful of contributors to that. Yeah. So people like to complain about stuff not being there, but they're not so eager to contribute, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's it's a good idea to uh, just tell tell us what spec is and what speculative uh, uh, is. Yeah, so closure spec is, um, what is that? It's uh, something that replaces schema. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you don't need to tell us what spec is. I think most of the people listening will know what spec is. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not speculative. <laughs> Uh, so speculative was just a collection or is a collection of specs for the core functions uh, in Clojure. Yeah. Uh, so that now um, Michel Borkent has, uh, I mangled his name, I guess. Uh, he's taken over that project, uh, but it's basically just specs for map, for filter, for the most used uh, core functions. So yeah. now you can basically run your program or your tests with spec, and you can get to know if you call the core functions uh, wrongly. Yeah, but do you spec in your um, in your production code base or your yeah, company yeah. code? Yeah, we do. We have uh, <laughs> we have spec, we have schema, and we have CLJ schema. So we have like three uh, generations of uh, 
spec tools. <laughs> okay. So you're on spec two or spec one? Spec one. Oh, okay. Spec two even out yet? Yeah, it's out. Uh, you saw that on 1st of April on Slack, didn't you? Uh, there was spec three, I think. Yeah, spec three, yeah. Yeah, there was spec three, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> so for we also used um, spec tools from Atosin mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, but we've moved a little bit away from that now. And we wrote at Ardoc, we wrote our own little piece of spec tools to do swagger generation for uh, for composure. Yeah. Where the spec tools thing did too much for us. Yeah. So your backend is mostly API. So it yes. really yes. Uh, has more synergy there, I think. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So, um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Sorry. So, so one of the things that uh, we kind of like and don't like about closure or about spec is that it's open. Mm. So I, I like to think of it that um, spec is sort of data interface, mm-hmm. whereas schema is more like data classes, right? Because in uh, in schema, if you try to pass more data than the schema says, then it blows up. Yeah, that's really annoying until it isn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it stops you from storing the whole of uh, Wikipedia in the in your database, but when you want to add one more key, you have to update the schemas, and that's also annoying. Yeah, but this is the thing about uh, required, the, like a kind of a view into the data that you're processing in that function in in specs, right? You can uh, do optional uh, only yeah, part of the part of the uh, data. The thing is that if you have um, spec that says that you have a required key mm-hmm. which is an int and you have an optional key another optional key which is a string then if you pass those two then they have to conform to the spec right yeah but nothing stops you from sending a bunch of other keys that nobody talks about yeah yeah so it will it will accept the data that doesn't yes, have yes. specs yeah yeah which is nice uh but it also you means you can't use it to sort of stop getting data into your database that you don't want there yeah. Well, I mean, if you, if you have a database, then obviously a database will have some sort of a schema, right? That is going to. Well, you could think so. Kind so. of block you. Uh, but MongoDB Unless doesn't have MongoDB. a schema. Oh, you have. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I said database. I mean, uh, yeah. Sorry, my fault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I think I think what you're saying is, I mean, uh, clearly you can you could you could write. I mean, maybe see you've, you've even done this. Write something yourself to. To police that interface, but yeah. what you're saying is that you can't leverage spec for that, and that's a shame. Yeah, or that's not what spec was designed to do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean it, it's designed for a certain reason, but I think as far as I know, like if you were at Closure Tree, Alex was saying that um, although they won't open by default, they're going to provide some tooling in the upcoming version of spec that will. It will offer you the ability to say only a certain set of keys must be passed. And yep. so I think they have listened to to people in that respect because they know that, you know, there are some APIs, for example, that will only only accept a limited range of keys. So even if yep. they maybe don't want that in their closure interfaces, they accept that there are some existing interfaces out there that will that will not tolerate that kind of open key space. 
Yeah, but I think it's interesting from like if if you look at how your code base, your internal code base becomes when you use spec, it's you program against interfaces, which is really nice, right? Uh, you yeah. say that, oh, the thing that I'm passing here has these keys, but it might have a lot of other stuff that I don't care about. And I think mm -hmm. that makes it possible to evolve the code base over time so that not everyone has to um, know about all the data that's passing through the system. It's, um, it's like with um, if the internet had to know like the protocols had to know about every little bit and piece of data that's passing through it doesn't it wouldn't have worked but you have a mm. protocol that says that you know a tcp thing is this and a payload mm. but it depends on the domain as well right because the, the keys are probably representative of the domain and if the domain doesn't change that much then you can actually restrict what you're passing or, or, or pre-design this is how it is going yeah, to but be. there is a there is a function called select keys you know mm. yeah yeah mm. yeah yeah i know but <laughs> it exists and it's existed for quite a long time so yeah if that's what you really want just do that you know yeah and that's a thing that i've seen in sort of an in a there's a conference here in Oslo called uh, FlatMap, which is basically a statically typed um, functional programming uh, conference. Right. And what I see is that they argue for functional or for static typing, and they're saying that, oh, I changed this one thing here, and I see like I get a ton of red things over there, and my compiler says that um, hmm. this is not going to work, right? But to me, that indicates that there's a design problem because hmm. you shouldn't... like. Changing one thing over here shouldn't give you a hundred errors over there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes it very brittle. I mean, I, I, that that is the, the the fundamental problem with these very kind of complicated type systems is that they're sort of magical and they do they can do great things. But you're right, they they constrain you and concretize your implementation um, mm. quite. Quite kind of, um, and I think again, maybe in certain domains that's really important. That you know, in medical equipment yep. or something, or certain types of environments where you know you want to be one hundred percent sure, or you want you know, uh, you know, you want to have sort of mathematical proof that this thing is correct. Then you know, maybe that's okay. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that my, one of my problems with. Um functional or with, with the dynamic languages is that I feel that I have to defend the usage of dynamic language or dynamic types, right? Because I'm choosing away some sort of uh, security me measure. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about it from, from a climbing perspective. It's like I'm choosing to climb without a rope because yeah. I don't fall. <laughs> Such climbers um, exist, I think. Oh, they do. They do. Not, not uh, many, probably. Definitely. Oh, free climbing is quite popular, I think. Uh, free climbing. Since I'm a climber myself, free climbing is climbing uh, with a rope, but not using other things than the rocks to get yourself up. up. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Uh, in comparison to aid climbing, what's the other one? Sorry. Uh, aid climbing. That's when you when you put stuff into the rock and you pull yourself up uh, on those mm. things. Oh. What's the one where you don't have any ropes then? That's free solo. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. 
Now, now we know. <laughs> now you know. So uh, there's this movie Free Solo. Oh yeah, I, isn't the guy uh, got into an accident and then he died, right? No, 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 no. Uh, I think uh, Is it a different guy. Is, that's a different guy. Okay, yeah. And I think none of the guys that really been on film actually fell down. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is this the guy who was uh, going through um, that uh, Catalina or something, the, the big uh, uh, super flat things in the, in the US? Yeah, in uh, El, El Capitan. Yeah, sorry, El Capitan. <laughs> I'm just speaking some Mac operating system. <laughs> probably Maori, probably. Right. I don't know. Right. Is, is this the guy who claimed Mountain Leopard? Oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it has a mountain in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But but where do you uh, so uh, when did you start climbing? Uh, a long time ago, or are you? Uh, yeah, before I started programming. Whoa! Okay. So I, so I started climbing when I was seventeen or eighteen, which is late now. But um, that was sort of halfway early at that point. Okay. Yeah. And what is the the I don't know levels, grades, whatever that that you crossed already? Is it like skiing? Uh, like the uh, black ones are difficult and. Well, and outside there's um, grades, and they normally we use uh, sport climbing grades, or at least what I do. Um, and they go from three to I think we're up to nine B or something now. Uh, and I stopped at eight B. Wow! So you can do that uh, Tom Cruise move in the Mission Impossible thing. Right? I would think so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> so you, you could be a chimney sweep. I probably could be. Yeah. It's not all else Korea, fails. You know, if the closure thing doesn't work out. Exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, back. Can we just go back to your your talk in closure D? Why? Yeah. Well, I'm completely unqualified to talk about climbing, and neither are you. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm completely unqualified to talk about closure as well. So, you know, I have equal. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Better climbing. Okay. Fine. <laughs> so, so climbing and closure because they are all they're, they're starting with CL, I guess. Yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> you you planned you planned this thing since the nineties, eighties <laughs> actually. Oh, sorry, eighties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, Ray, you're talking about closure D. Yeah, you asked the question right at the beginning um, about the the topic of the talk at closure D. And I don't know if we've already covered it or whether we're, we we should now bring that round to it. Um, yeah, so we can bring that back. Um, so basically, it was a list of things that I think are important if you want to write uh, maintainable closure. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's uh, have an argument about that then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I always like these manifestos that people make, you know. So let's let's get it let's get it going. Yeah. So I started out with um with an article from uh, that um, Eric Raymond um, took up on his podcast, which was stratified design by Abelson and Sussman, hmm. and where they go about and they talk about how if you want to write maintainable software, it has to be somewhat more general than what the specs are saying because things are going to evolve. So you're going to have to make sure that you have room to evolve. And 
they t say that you do this by doing a stratified design. And so what is stratified design? And I think that the thing that I brought up in the talk is that, and that Eric Raymond also brought up, is that we use ha maps to, to model our domains, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but as you walk down through the layers in your stratified design, up at the top, you talk about a user. Yeah. And then you should do operations that are um, sort of relevant to the user. So if if you're working on a user, then you can do change password, mm. right? Mm. Uh, whereas when you go down into the layers, you're operating on maps. Mm. Then a yeah. or disoc are nice things. Yeah. But you shouldn't associate and dissociate on a user like at the top level. Maybe you do that inside a function, but the operations that you do on a user should be at the user level and not at the map or seek level. Does that make sense? Of course, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you yeah. you, you kind of have uh, different uh, what should we say? Different degrees of um, uh, different degrees of 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 of, of um, abstractions yeah abstractions but also i'm thinking of like um generalities i would say because at top you're very specific it's, yeah it's like parochialism isn't it you know at a certain point there are parochial concerns you know that's a very difficult word for me oh i mean they're like local concerns they're concerns yeah. to you in the this the local place that you are and so the next thing that uh, I think I brought up was uh, be careful to name things. Like Clojure is a language where you don't have to create um, a user class, right? Yeah. We have a map for that. Yeah. But it it might be useful still to sort of have this user thing in your program if if your program is about users. And I think even more important is to name your anonymous functions. Yeah. Uh, because both in Clojure and in JavaScript, I think I see a lot of map some sort of anonymous function over some collection. Mm. And unless you're building like Clojure Core, then your application is probably not about mapping, filtering, and reducing, but it's about the things that you map with or you reduce with or you filter with, right? So those are the things that you should name. Yeah, but this is uh, probably similar to your first point as well, right? Because the mapping yeah. and filtering become yeah. like a sort of a implementation or a lower level uh, things. Where do yeah. you draw the line there, though, Eric? Because you know one of the nice things about you know about functional programming is that it can be anonymous. So there there is a kind of like and I think Zach Talman said this, you know, that in his book which is that if you don't have to name something, then you shouldn't name it because actually naming things is a pain in the ass. You're kind of stuck with a name. So names can be nice sort of for debugging purposes if you're, if you're doing like partial functions or whatever. But generally, kind of naming things is a burden. So yeah, but why I, do we have I to name then... things? Maybe I'm missing your, your point there. Well, uh, that this point was brought up after the talk as well, I think that um, in Elements of Closure, Zach Tillman says that, you know, uh, avoid naming at all costs. No, he doesn't say that, but. No. But I'm, I would argue that if, uh, if at your application layer, you have problems with naming stuff, 
naming the operations that you do on your users, then then you don't understand your domain. Oh no, that, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But sure. what I really like is when you have like a threading pipeline that you don't have to say that oh on the one side of this thing I take a user and then I on the other side I have this slightly modified user which I have to call something because it's a class and then you know through right, the pipeline right, you have okay. to call. Yeah. 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 No, I think I think if everyone can kind of get on board with those those distinctions. Yeah. yeah. But do, do you um, mainly use maps or do you reach out to some other things like records? No, we, we use maps. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, we we have uh, Mongo, right? Oh, yeah. So basically, it's JSON in and then some as yeah, little yeah. as possible transformation and then JSON out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, I think uh, designing the domain... Uh... It's like the programming equivalent of the human centipede. <laughs> but that I think that's interesting. I mean, we have seventy thousand lines of code, including tests, right? And basically, all we do is we take JSON and we store JSON and we deliver JSON. Yeah. Why do you have so much code then? Um, I can tell you a couple of reasons. I think uh, one is that we, in my sort of humble opinion, we use Mongo the wrong way. I don't, I don't think there is any right way to use Mongo. But <laughs> that's what I heard on the internet. <laughs> I think there is. Um, but if you try to use a document database as a relational database, oh, yeah. you're asking for trouble. Yeah. So instead of having our data sort of stored in, in documents, we have a bunch of relations. Hmm. And then we have to do all the constraints management ourselves, making sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Mongo has schemas, yeah. uh, but we're not using them. So we have to uh, make sure that the data is correct in the application layer. Mm. Uh, at the point, at the time when we started using Mongo, Mongo didn't have uh, aggregates, which they have today, which means that they didn't have joints. Yeah. So we have to do joins in the application layer as well. Yeah. That's a lot of data so, moving around. Yes. So you adopted Mongo in the same way as you adopted Java, basically, before it was ready. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And the problem with Mongo is that it keeps getting slightly better. Yeah. So so you're not really pushed over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, now they have transactions too, right? Yeah, yeah. So you don't have that argument either. But I mean, the, it, it's really interesting how they took over the, the whole, you know, kickstarting a project phase, like like Ruby on Rails, you know? It's yeah. so easy to get started. So just, just you know, type MongoD and then you're ready and then you can just show whatever the thing that you like and then build the stuff up from that one. Yeah, and I think Bodil's talk from, uh, from Erdev there, that she used Mongo as well, right? And that sort of, it's, saves you a lot of time in the beginning because you don't have to define the schema you can just hammer stuff into the database and it's happy yeah um which is great but then when you sort of mature you start paying for this because you don't know what's in the database and yeah and um it just becomes a mess to clean up yeah yeah so you would say just 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 so i understand it back to your point then you've got these seventy thousand lines and it's basically because you're essentially doing the work of Mongo, the, the work that a database should be doing, 
or that a relational database would be doing, you're doing that in your application. Yeah, I'm not saying that we would get rid of all the code, but uh, no, a lot sure. of the code could have been uh, done in um, in the database. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, we could have written the whole thing in PLSQL as well, you know, and everything would have been in the database. Oh, yeah, of course. I, mean, yeah. I, I, I think one of the Article 9 had a PLSQL HTTP server. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could uh, write... Times. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like come in, you know, keep keep move, keep showing shit into into the database itself, you know, like yeah. But it's cares? also, you know, why would you want to write HTML in SQL? Uh, well, <laughs> if you're from Oracle, yeah, <laughs> you really want people to do everything in the database, so you can charge for I don't know key typed, whatever. They they have amazing licensing policies. So, but to circle back to uh, to the talk a little bit, yeah. Um, another thing that I've so I've I've used a lot of examples from our code base, which is interesting mm-hmm. because our CTO started using Clojure when he didn't really know it. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of gems, um, you know, good examples of what not to do. <laughs> I guess you've got to be and, a little um, bit like, uh, <laughs> oh, dude, you know, <laughs> I'm going to talk about this amongst the whole Clojure community. I'm going to shame the shit out of you. You know, <laughs> are you okay with that? <laughs> I'm fine, and uh, no, no, you are. What about him now? <laughs> uh, he's fine. He's <laughs> okay. He's given up uh, coding. He's not coding anymore. But uh, okay. but that that's that's an important thing, though. Uh, he did whatever he did in best effort. Uh, yeah. At, mm. And they got this company off the ground. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually true. viable. Yeah. yeah. So. You know, that's that's the thing when you do sort of retrospectives, and I brought this up a little bit in the talk as well, is that assume mm. good intent. I mean, yeah. Yeah, he yeah, didn't sit yeah. there and write this, and I'll write this like really convoluted code because I can. No, he did it because that was, you know, how he thought closure was supposed to be written Yeah, or whatever. Sure, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, always, yeah. always consider the context. I think that was the key, you know, like understand yeah, yeah. in which context it's been written and, yeah. And that's also when you do, um, you know, PRs and everything is that people generally do stuff in good, good intent and, yeah. and, uh, you know, be nice to each other. It's, it's yeah. much nicer that way. But, but another thing that we have in our code base is overly general functions. Mm. So functions that handle anything that you throw at it mm. and also overly defensive functions, which check for everything. So you don't know if they're just checking for everything because they want to or because it's actually something that we can expect to happen. And mm-hmm. that yeah. as uh, as a developer coming afterwards it makes me insecure of the code. Like yeah. when can the user be null? Can it be that at this point? Yeah. And that's where you sort of need to create boundaries within your uh, architecture that you say, you know, on the outside here the user can be a null, uh, on the inside no it can't be. But isn't that the one that type systems are supposed to help you with? Well, no, because uh, <laughs> what you see people do, at least in the beginning with um, with types, so say you have something like uh, a maybe thing, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, option type. So yeah. when people start out, it's like, oh, if option dot has whatever it's supposed to have, then you do what you're supposed to do. Otherwise, you yeah. say, uh, I don't have that. Yeah. Uh, but what you see 
uh, after a while is that you should do this checking at some boundary and then all the functions inside uh, should be, you know, I, I know that I have the user here. Yeah. You don't send but a maybe user around. But yeah. Isn't that a nice thing for spec though? Because like these required keys and stuff like that, um, yeah. you know, we use, we use that so we can have like, we, we can have confidence that, yeah, these keys are required. We don't have to check things because we just do a valid on him. Just check. We, well, there is a check, but it's very little from our coding. You know, we just say, well, there has to be a valid user at this point. Otherwise, yeah. we're just throwing an exception. And, you know, obviously, we're assuming that 99.999 recurring percent is going to be fine. Yeah. But the thing is that, you know, down at the, ba uh, say, three levels down where you persist mm. the database, you shouldn't be wondering if there is a user or not. Yeah, exactly. That should have been you handled be at some other about point. It, but I don't think there's a problem with having a spec to say there must be, for example. No, no, no. I think that's the that's the difference, right, between Clojure and other other languages. Because in other languages, you're 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 forcing this this at every level. So in mm. Clojure, yes. you have a bit of a freedom to say the the outer layer because you want to be accepting everything when you're accepting. But when yep, you're producing yep. something, you want to be very clear on what, what you're producing. Yep. So I think the inner layer, well, maybe, we can I mean, tighten classic, up a bit. Yeah. I mean, the classic case on the outside is you might have some defaults that, that you'll fill in. Yeah. But you don't want to be doing that every fucking way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think the thing that I brought up in the talk there is that there's a thing about protocols that you should be lenient in what you accept and strict in what you send, right? right. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's really nice for APIs, for external yeah. APIs, but for inside your code, inside your application, you should be fairly strict on what you accept as well. Yeah, yes, yeah, but yes. that's still that's still under your control, right? Because API yeah. is suddenly yeah. an interface that you don't have any control over. Um, yeah. For the internal API, of course, what you said makes uh, complete sense yeah. because you're you're the you're part of the system, so yeah. you know what, what is happening there. Yeah. Mm. But I do find that, I mean, you know, I mean, this is one of, to me, by the way, this is one of the things where spec really, really earns its corn is that if you, on your own internal sort of APIs, if you use spec there, you can be quite rigid with what, what you enforce because you know that, okay, well, you know, yep. I'm, I'm not going to put nothing there because I don't want to completely trust that I can't be called with shit, but I can be quite rigid in what, what I spec. And what I say must be there because I'm controlling it. So yep. I don't need to be too fussy about could be, couldn't be, you know, whereas I, I am mm. more like that on the outside. Yeah, because I see we find that a lot from our tests. We run those either with schemas on or specs on, mm. and they catch quite a bit of things. So like you say that I'm expecting something that has this shape and it suddenly doesn't. Hmm. You know, we had uh, this guy, Jay, on recently. Uh, we had lots of arguments with him. He was a very funny guy. I remember <laughs> that. That was a great episode. Yeah, it was such a was... guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. But uh, what, what he said, and I, I really liked, I, I mean, I love orchestra and the sort of stuff he's doing with spec. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've definitely adopted this approach in my own code as well. Maybe it's not at work yet, but this notion of just instrumenting everything and just taking the hit. Mm. is i think a really good a really good idea actually i think he made a really good point there that although although this um, instrumentation is meant to be expensive it turns out in reality it's not that expensive and we actually had a point um like really far so when we fetch stuff out of the database 
I did spec checks on the stuff coming out of the database to see that it was actually because we don't have a schema, right? So you have to be <laughs> yeah. certain of what's so there. So you have like both sides because of MongoDB being external actor for your system. <laughs> yes. So you have specs when you store stuff Random and specs when you generator. pull it out. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but that was actually turning out to be quite costful for us. Hmm. So on the uh, on the sort of entities where we pull a lot of I stuff, I mean, you from know, the you, database. in fairness, you're kind of like on sitting on way on the extreme there, Eric. You know, <laughs> 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 every database access. You know, okay, yeah, you know. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that was that was too much. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. I mean, there are limits to everything, you know. <laughs> you definitely found it there. Mm. Almost like, uh, you know, an order of magnitude more checks happening every time. Yep. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to insert something into the database. I'm reading, but wait a minute. Did I, did I get the data <laughs> properly back or not? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is that we have old data as well, right? So Yeah, exactly. Because you're the schema. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, we had the same, uh, we had the similar kind of thing, but I think our, our at that time I was writing Akka and Scala and MongoDB. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was um, uh, because we, we didn't need any any joins or anything. So we did use MongoDB, but um, eventually you keep evolving the document version to next versions and everything. So that that made all the, you know, case classes go fucking haywire because everything is an option because... And you read from the database and you know that it's not going to be there because you fucked up. Well, you, it was not there before in, in, mm. in the domain before. So it was, uh, it was fun. So I, yeah. I, I, can, I can relate to that. Bit. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So um, any other uh, points? Um, no, it's, I think I've gotten most of the things that I wanted to talk about. But um, I wanted also to mention that... Uh, I'm fairly lucky and privileged, you know, uh, working in this domain for so long. And um, I live in a country where you basically cannot get fired, even if you're making fun of your boss's code. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, even if you get fired, you're sort of on social security. Hmm. And so I have like a security network around me, which is, uh, which is super important which yeah. lets you be grumpy at work, lets you ask questions, you know, question why are we doing this? So that is, uh, I understand for other people, that is not so easy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I mean, I don't think, uh, well, I got fired as well, so I know uh, how it feels <laughs> like uh, asking some questions and then they're like, pack your shit and then go home. and. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's, writing yeah, Visual I think C plus plus code, and yeah, I think everyone at a certain point you do get fired. I mean, I've been fired for for asking questions, but you know, I think the um, you're you're right in general that IT is a kind of privileged space, really. You know, if you're a programmer these days, um, in any country, I think, then I think you're in a kind of privileged environment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think another thing that I've learned sort of over the last couple of years, and especially working in RDoC with, um, uh, with our CTO, is that a disagreement is basically just a thing which means that you're not seeing where the other pe person is standing. Yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, if, if 
I am the CTO. If we disagree, it's not because the CTO is stupid. It's because he has some other considerations. Yeah. And uh, I feel, again, there I'm privileged working with really smart people and I people that I respect and that I know that I've thought things through, mm. um, which is really great because then we can have disagreements and you know that when you come through these that you've actually learned something, both of us. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to say, one of the things that I do find a little bit annoying in some of the discussions we have with programmers is that they say, oh, these these fucking idiots have done this, they've done that. They, Oh, man, they're so dumb. They've done this and they've done that. And um, you know, I often push back and say, well, you know, people often take shortcuts for good reasons. You know, mm. you might not like that shortcut. It might not be the most perfect answer. But think about why these people are making these shortcuts. They're making the shortcuts because it's probably the only way they can actually deliver something or get something done because they're getting pressure from their bosses to, you know, to make something work. They're suddenly, you know, they're storing passwords in a database. They're not salting it or whatever, but you know, they're, that doesn't matter to them. They've been told they have to deliver something and yep. they don't have to have everything completely finished in a perfect way. That's a bad example, but it does happen, you know, um, some people are a kind of, you know, all about just delivering things for, because that's what their project managers want. That's what, that's what they need. That's what their deadlines are. That's maybe it's their wages depend on it. So people are under pressure to do these things, you know, even if it's not the smartest thing in the world. So you have to sometimes understand why people are doing things, not necessarily. And I don't think, I don't think they're always good intentioned either i think sometimes people just do it because they have to you know <laughs> yeah yeah but i think it's also like again i'm not scared of losing my job right so i can argue that yeah. we have to spend some more time and we have to salt these uh, passwords yeah uh, whereas if you're scared shitless of losing your job and that's the only way that you get uh, health insurance then yeah you know you store those passwords I think that that's a really good point because, uh, as you said, I mean, you live in a in a in a in a in a environment and context and a country where you have this safety net around you that gives you a little bit more um, um, opportunity to to actually show your courage or you know be be uh, more inquisitive or be ask you know ask questions or because in yeah. the other places, yeah. um, I mean, I, I'm I'm in both sides, right? I'm I, I manage a team and then. This this so-called psychological safety that you can just say, "Fuck you, Vijay," is is is, is pretty okay in in my team, mm. and you can say that and and you can complain about my code. There is no problem, but how much you 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 even though you say so many things, if I work with a uh, group of people who are coming from a country like India, for example, where I'm I'm from, and there there is there is no fucking way you can say no to anything for no. your boss. So and and there is this uh, stereotypical idea of Indian programmers just. Uh, you know, uh, do this, like uh, waving their heads and, and saying yes to everything. That is because of, you know, that there is no other fucking way. If you say no, you, you're going to lose your job. And, yeah. uh, but here, you know, because I've been living in the Netherlands for 10 years now, and that touch being direct and everything, because there is a certain safety net and, and um, equality among, you know, people once you step out of the, of the office. Mm -hmm. So that gives you way more freedom to say what you want to say. So yep. I, I totally get your point. Yeah. But I think also it's important there to be tactful, you know, and, and I think yeah. it's, 
there's stuff at work that I might not agree to. Yeah. Like go implement this thing here. And I say, why would I want to implement that? And then it's on me to sort of, it's both on me and my manager, if you will, to, to get mm. the understanding of why this is important because yeah. nobody's asking me to do this feature because they think it's fun. It is because we have like an idea of this being important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's both on me as a programmer to understand or to, to get that understanding, but also on my manager to give me that understanding, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it all brings down to like a code should most of the time have a purpose, <laughs> that, that is yeah, serving yeah. some sort of a problem, solving a problem or having, having, having a purpose. And sometimes, yeah, code is just code. You just have fun and then do whatever you like. The, yeah. the, there, is, there is time for those kind of things as well. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really nice, uh, nice thought. So um, I was thinking, you know, what do you think that is uh, not so good stuff? But I, I, I think it, it feels like I don't want to end on that one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, you know, I, I, because, you know, you've been so uh, kind and then you, you, you explained some of the nice things that, that, you know, I want to leave it at, the, at a higher note rather than, I mean, we are we are pretty much used to complaining about shit all, all the time, you know. Okay, right? that's what exactly that's yeah. what we do. Yeah, uh, especially given the <laughs> no. So you're breaking the tradition at DefN. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think um, you know these are trying times for for people around the world anyway, and um, so it's, uh, the 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 kindness should be at every level, you know, at mm -hmm. work, at, at life, mm -hmm. and everything. And I hope everybody is uh, staying safe. And um, I mean, luckily, all three of us are in a pretty uh, decent uh, countries. Um, yeah, and I think it's important. We're as we started out, Ray and I were talking a little bit uh, prior to the show, and a lot of people are now starting to work from home, right? Yeah. And we have to realize that this this is not normal distributed work. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I have three extremely well behaved kids uh, running around the house, so I get to work um, eight hours a day, even so they're home. But other people are living in smaller apartments with uh, yeah. I don't know uh, more busy kids. Yeah. Um, and you have to realize that your productivity is going to drop in these uh, yeah. in these situations. Mm -hmm. And I hope as companies that we can see past like these couple of weeks um, and give people some benefit of of doubt when the tr productivity drops a little bit. Yeah, I think there's also, like you say, Eric. I mean, you know, there is there is stress external externalities, what you want to call it, um, but stressful kind of aspects to this thing in Europe, where you know where we tend to have like more safety nets than they have in in places like India. Even places like mm. the US, yeah, yeah, which is you know a shocking place, really. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. uh, the, the world is becoming revealed as the sort of you know either kind of a, a nice place to survive um, a pandemic or not a nice place to survive a pandemic. Yeah. And we're lucky to be in a relatively safe place, you know, all three of us. Mm. So, um, so yeah, definitely, we you know, my heart goes out to people that are feeling stress. Um, because they have to work at home maybe it's in maybe it's even in big houses or you know big or small apartments but if they're suddenly feeling like wow you know this whole economy is just grinding to a halt yeah. um and what do i do you know if i get ill yeah uh, you know this is the thing that really worries me about um 
about countries where there's none of these kind of um, privileges because they they're even scared to go out and call their doctor or go to the hospital because they yeah or they be, can't they can't even they it. can't even afford it exactly. yeah exactly yep and you can't even afford staying away from work if you're sick because uh, yeah. then you get fired. And if yep. you know that that is not a good context for productive work, you know. <laughs> nope. Anyway, um, on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> Let's. But I think you're right. I think what Eric said was right, which is like we have to be kind to each other. Exactly. And, and think you echoed it as well, VJ. You know, let's be, yep. be sympathetic to our colleagues and. Um, and kind to each other in these difficult uh, moments um, and understanding yeah. of the stress that we're all under. Yeah. So um, I think um, all is well when it ends well. Uh, and, you know, everything that, that has a beginning has an end. So obviously things will get uh, get normal, or whatever normality is, I think. Mm. So, and better. So everybody who is listening to the podcast, I think uh, you are staying safe, washing your hands, and taking care of uh, each other as much as you can. And uh, for the people who are affected by it, um, you know, our, our, our sympathies and our heart goes out to you. And yes. um, uh, so be kind and uh, try to uh, use more closure and try to have as much fun as you can. And um, we hope to bring back uh, the normal times where we can, uh, you know, have more of our stupidity <laughs> delivered to you <laughs> in our podcast. <laughs> I think there's been a decent portion of stupidity this time. You know, obviously Eric <laughs> brought the the good stuff, but you know, we've we brought the stupidity. We tried, so, we tried, you know, yeah, we yeah. Tried. Yeah. I mean, we 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 try to deliver on our stupidity <laughs> <laughs> direct to your uh, your it's, podcast things. It's been a good talk, and um, I think that, as I said, uh, the my biggest problem with closure is that I'm stuck with it. <laughs> which is which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. There, there are there are worse things to be stuck in. For like like awkward programming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the ultimate first world problem. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> okay. On that uh, bombshell, uh, we'd <laughs> we'd like to say goodbye, um, and uh, we'll be back soon, hopefully in a couple of weeks again. Uh, stay safe and uh, enjoy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Defan. And the awesome vegetarian music or the track is Melon Hamburger by Pizzeri. And the show's audio is mixed by Walter Dullert. I'm pretty sure I butchered his name. Um, maybe you should insert your own name here, Dullert. If you'd like to support us, uh, please do check out our Patreon page. And you can show your appreciation to all the hard work or the lack of hard work that we're doing. And um, you can also catch up with uh, either Ray with me for some unexplainable reason. Uh, you want to interact with us, then uh, do check us out on Slack, Closure in Slack or Closureverse, or on Zulip, or just at us at Defen Podcast on Twitter. Enjoy your day and see you in the next episode.
Okay, definite credits, fucking take 27 or something.